Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. On today's episode, I'm going to cover a couple of different things. One, I'm going to provide a little bit of a recap on the second annual Fearless Female Fraud Fighter virtual retreat. We had a little over 50 incredible women from our industry all join on Zoom, and I will share just a little bit of what was talked about. And for anyone who attended, don't worry, these are all completely anonymous, but you may recognize some of these. Secondly, I'm going to answer a few follow-up questions from listeners, especially on the last two solo episodes. Two weeks ago, I did an episode on the VDMP, so the Visa Dispute Monitoring Program, versus the Visa Fraud Monitoring Program, and had a few follow-up questions on that, as well as at least one question on the episode I did last week on the price of trust, where I provided some real-world examples and case studies from large enterprise merchants that have been shared with me that actually can provide you with some guidance on how to quantify uh, customers' trust, whether it's lost or gained, and how that really does impact your bottom line. And then lastly today, I saw some interesting projections and observations on post-pandemic e-commerce sales trends. And I do, it kind of reminded me of a couple other conversations I've had recently with e-commerce merchants, both about the fraud vendor landscape and just what they're seeing uh, with customers and, and users that signed up for their services because of the pandemic, especially for companies that saw a very steep increase in user numbers in 2020. So I thought that would be interesting for fraud and risk people as well as merchants and vendors. There will be a little bit of something for everyone there. So that's what I wanted to chat about a little bit this week. And I'm going to start with just a little bit of gushing and appreciation for the 50 plus women that attended, not 50 and older, but like <laughs> over 50 females that attended the second annual Fearless Female Fraud Fighter virtual retreat. Don't say that fast five times. That's why I just call it F4. It was beyond magical and just made me kick myself for not doing it sooner and more often, as well as finding a way to scale this even more, because I know it really impacted the people that attended. And truthfully, while I had four hours of content on the agenda, we really only got through introductions in three and a half hours. It probably sounds ridiculous, but I asked a few prompt questions and it actually really sparked some great conversations. And I checked in with the attendees a couple times. Okay, guys, do you still want to be doing this? But everyone really did. And it was funny how many people reached out to me and just said how awesome it was. And I thought we didn't even get to the content. We didn't even really do anything. But I do think there's something to be said for meeting other people that have similar jobs as you in similar situations and similar challenges as well as interests and passions and just hearing yourself in other people's stories. There's something really powerful in that. And 
I know that there's already been several connections and friendships that have been built in just the last few days since that happened. So very happy about it. And I'm the boss, so to speak. I just decided, you know what? Let's do another two calls so that we actually go through the content. So it while it was going to be a one-day thing, it's now going to be a three-day thing, not in four-hour chunks, but I'm looking forward to that. And just really, I appreciated the grounding and just the magic that came through, even though it was in Zoom, of people who don't necessarily know each other, but who have so much in common. One of the questions I asked everyone who introduced themselves was why they enjoy or why they love being in fraud and payments. I think if you've listened to this podcast at all, you've heard me say that most of us fell into this by accident. It's absolutely true, but we stay on purpose. And so that's what I wanted people to talk about. The other question I asked besides the typical name, company, how many years you've been in the industry, et cetera. Some people like were measuring in weeks. Other people were measuring in decades. But yet we all had things in common. It was pretty great. One of the other questions I asked was, what's something big or small, personal or professionally that you're proud of? I think too often, and maybe this is true for all genders. I just only know the female experience, but I know for me, I'm often so focused on what I haven't done or what I need to do or what I want to do that I don't think back to what am I proud of? What did I do recently where I'm like, okay, I'll take a minute and pat myself on the back, not be full of myself, but just, okay, good. I did a good job and then move on. I don't like to sit in that feeling for very long. It's uncomfortable for me, but I do try to intentionally do that. And it has helped me gain some confidence as well, because you can go, oh, okay, I did that so I can do this. So just some of the things that some of the attendees said about why they love being in fraud, I took lots of notes and you'll hear a couple repetitive things, but I think that these are relatable for everyone if you are a fraud fighter. And or if you support fraud fighters, I thought this would be interesting. So one person said they really love putting together a story, utilizing the data. Uh, Another one said it's also frustrating, but the constant change and innovation of fraud really keeps them on their toes and keeps them engaged and interested. Another person said love working on escalated issues that no one else knows what to do with. I enjoy seeing the bigger picture. Fixing problems by building things for your business. The person who shared that had recently joined a very well-known company in the last year and already proposed a pretty significant fix to a big problem that is already saving the company multiple millions of dollars. And that is quite the feeling of pride. I have done that in my full-time career as a fraud fighter as well as a consultant. And I know how rewarding that is. Another person said they really enjoy the human side, learning why people do what they do. Not everyone that abuses a platform is a bad person necessarily. Sometimes it's out of need and that doesn't make it okay, but it's interesting and fascinating. I think that same person was also the person who said that they grew up their 20s reading Perez Hilton and really liking pop culture and how they compared that to fraud fighting. And I've said that for years that the Real Housewives and fraudsters have a lot in common. I always enjoy figuring out why they do what they do. One is just a little bit more for entertainment value than the other. (laughs) Finding the treasure, stopping the bad guy, solving the code or the puzzle, tangibly seeing the difference you're making, 
one person said they're just really competitive and won't let a fraudster get one up on them. <laughs> Seeing technology grow and consumers and fraudsters adapt, as well as then matching that adaptation with new technology, just that continual cat and mouse, but just how much technology has changed over the last 10, 15, 20 years and how that has impacted how fraud is perpetrated, as well as how it's stopped and prevented. Another person said, my decisions directly impact my company's bottom line, and that's fulfilling. Another person said something similar to others, the chase, fraudsters keep me young. <laughs> Another person said that they've really enjoyed taking their company from reactive to fraud to proactive. I can relate to that. It is such a great feeling, and I don't know what it's to reach the top of Everest, but I certainly know what it's like to feel like you've turned that corner from reactive to proactive, and it is very fulfilling and a relief as well for a lot of reasons. A couple more. So balance between fighting fraud and reducing customer friction keeps them on their toes, keeps them engaged and interested, and just is never-ending, and it's a constant balance. It's intertwined with cybersecurity and intricacies. This person has really seen that they've been at their company for, I think, like 12 years. It's a very well-known, large, very large company. Uh, and they've moved around to different departments and realized how much that's been able to help them really work on fraud because they can see things from different areas, including cybersecurity and just all the intricacies within fraud fighting. Using data to tell a story, to present to the company and create new resources and opportunities. And then somebody else said, and I just thought this was funny, the customer may always be right, but the fraudster is always wrong. <laughs> so anyway, those are just some of the ones that I wrote down that I thought were fun to share with the group because I bet that you can relate to a lot of those. And if you can't, then maybe it helps you better understand the people that you are Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, 
and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. Supporting. Switching gears here. (laughs) It's not really a fast transition, but I received a couple of, or I guess a seamless transition is what I meant to say, but I received a couple of questions from listeners about some of the past podcast episodes that I thought other people might have too. In one case, I met with a merchant, two two people at a merchant this past week, and they said, did you do that VDMP versus VFMP episode for us? And I was like, not really, actually. I've gotten that question a lot, but I'm really glad it was helpful. Uh, And they broke out their notes, and that was uh, rewarding for me. I'm glad that this can be a helpful medium for other people to learn about things. I think the first thing that they mentioned that they were frustrated with was when this particular company found out out of the blue, like it mostly happens, that they were on the visa fraud monitoring program. They felt like no one, none of the companies that they worked with had the answers that they needed or were able to help them in the way that they needed. So they went to their, I mean, their payment processor was the one that gave them the information because the way Visa and MasterCard are set up with an open loop system is that they don't interact directly with merchants or with cardholders. Instead, issuers interact with cardholders and payment processors uh, and acquirers, they interact with merchants and they're the messaging system. And that can be challenging when you have a payment processor that doesn't fully understand the program or know how to explain it to people. I guess if you work for a payment processor and you are delivering this information, I would urge you to consider that the people you're talking to may have never been on this list and now they have to explain it to other people in their company and they need to know what the program is. They need to understand how did we get here? How do we get off of the list? What do we need to know? When are we going to get fined? What are all the parameters? A lot of that I covered in that episode, but Honestly, they're looking to their payment processors to tell them that because their payment processor is the one that notified them of this. And in this case, the payment processor just said, we'll go talk to your fraud prevention company. And the fraud prevention company was like, I don't know, that's a payment processor issue. The program is a payment processor issue. And I would say it's in the middle. The payment processor should have more information specific to the VFMP program as far as the parameters and how you can get ahead of it and all those other pieces of how to get off of the list and all of that. But your fraud provider should be able to help you if you're, you should be able to get a list from your payment processor. And I know everyone does this differently of transactions that have been marked as fraud within the TC40 program. It's called something else within Visa, but it's, I think some processors call it transactions likely to turn into chargebacks. And I think in some cases they only provide that to merchants that are in the program. Getting a list of those transactions that were marked as fraud, whether they turned into chargebacks or not, is going to help then you go to your fraud prevention provider and say, hey, these are the transactions that were missed that have now been marked as fraud were in the program really need your help analyzing this, or maybe that's something the fraud department can do, depending on the size. Stop and prevent these transactions from happening again so we can get off of this list. 
that is how both of those entities should be supporting a merchant when they're on the VFMP. The VDMP is very similar, but it's easier because you have your list of chargebacks. The VFMP can be a little more, it can just have more ambiguity because not many payment processors are providing the TC40 list raw with raw details and data on a monthly or regular basis. Uh, so you have to do a guessing game. And that leads to the, the first question. The merchant I talked to, really, and I received this by email a couple other times too, is there any way to project our likelihood of being added to the VFMP? Or how do we even know if we're on the list? And how do we know how to get off of the list if it's just this like arbitrary list that issuers have access to, but not the merchant themselves? And Unfortunately, there really isn't a way to project your likelihood to be added to the VFMP list. That is frustrating for me to say. It just the way that payment processors have decided to not provide that information. And I get it. They're huge data files. It's tons of data. Having to store that somewhere can cost a lot of money. And so many merchants have been able to manage this without access to those. So why do it? I did mention in that episode that there is at least one company that provides chargeback notifications that at least used to gain a lot of their alerts from the TC40 list and the MasterCard Safe report, which is MasterCard's version of TC40s. So the chargeback alert company, you can contact them and ask. The reason why I hesitate is just because each of them, there's two main ones that provide chargeback alert services and both of them were purchased by different card brands one was purchased by visa and one was purchased by mastercard so i don't know how what the data sources are or if they've changed at all for either of those sources i don't know if one just does mastercard and one just does visa now i don't think that's the case but that would be where I would suggest if this is a strong concern for you. Yes, there's a cost to it, but that's the best way I know. But you can also check with your payment processor. They might have more reporting than you realize or that you can ask for especially. Yeah, and I wrote down that question that I answered earlier, but who should be helping us? I will say that this poor merchant even tried to call Visa and they did some sleuthing to figure out like who their Visa account rep was. And the Visa account rep was very surprised to be getting a call from a merchant and just kept saying, well, you need to talk to your payment processor. And this poor merchant is like, I've tried, which is just another reason why I could go off on a rant on this that would last the rest of this episode. But just going to say this is yet another reason why it is so important for payment processors, fraud tech solutions, anyone that are vendors and support companies for your merchants. Don't just assume that since they're using your product that they don't need any help or you don't need to reply to their emails. This has become an issue that, unfortunately, I really don't like it when I keep hearing it about the same companies over and over again, but it does happen. And then often what happens after that is a few months after that, when I start hearing that, then those same merchants or merchants that are using that to other merchants that are using that tool then start asking me for advice on who they should be looking at in place of that provider. I know some vendors and, and Nate, Carl, and I talked about this a little bit on the Spectrust interview. Some vendors are happy with their merchants just sitting there not doing anything. And they don't really, they don't feel like they have to help them as much because they know it's such a lift to get off of their platform and to change payment providers or fraud providers. But that should not be, to me, that just shouldn't be the default. To me, I think the best providers that I know and have worked with are the ones who care just as much, if not more, about their existing customers than they do prospective customers. 
that will take you a long way. Another question that they asked was that it was stated that Visa and MasterCard won't allow merchants who are in the program to process payments. When does that begin? So I really hope that's not how I phrased it. This I got an email actually, but it doesn't mean that happens right away at all. And it doesn't even happen when the fines start. That's more like month 12. So if you've been in the VFMP program for a full year and haven't been able to have two months consistently in a row, or is it three months? Sorry, the VFMP program is a little different than VDMP. In a row without fines, then you could get to that. There's a lot of factors that go into that decision. It's not just a light switch that goes off at month 12, but it does depend on a few factors. But you should have had many calls with your payment processor and others by that point to really try to get that under control. And if you are getting to those final months in either the VDMP or the VFMP, I personally, and I know I'm very biased, think it would be critically important to bring in a consultant who has worked with lots of merchants to get them off this program. Wow, that's a plug. But uh, it's just true. I mean, you're going to save so much more money hiring me or, or someone else that has all that experience to help strategize and get you off the program and, and do what you need to do than getting to the fine part where it's $50,000, $75,000, $100,000 a month. And on the VDMP, it's $50 to $100 extra per chargeback once you start getting a fine. So sometimes it's worth having someone who's done this multiple times to just come in and help You'll take a look at what your situation is and then provide some standard as well as out-of-the-box solutions for getting off that program. The one other thing I'm going to say is if you didn't listen to that episode or even if you did, I just want to remind you that in addition to all the other things in the program, one side effect of being in the VFMP program or just having high TC40 claims at all is that some issuing banks, especially regional and credit unions and smaller, will often just decline all transactions on your site because they start to worry that your website might be fraudulent, that you might be a fraudulent merchant and they want to protect their customers. So if you are on that program, if you do think you have high fraud, it's worth going through a BIN analysis on your authorizations, your credit card authorizations. If you have a payments department, they're probably doing that. But if you don't, I highly recommend it. You can do it by bin. You can do it by all different kinds of things, but at least doing it by the bin, the bank identification number, first six digits of the card, sorting out your payment declines from your bank by that and looking for trends can help you identify if you have a problem with that. And really, there's no seamless way to have an issuer change their mind, but you can attempt to reach out or work with your payment processor to at least get those fraud claims lower so that you can increase your authorizations because that really is impacting your bottom line. And then for last week's Price of Trust episode, I heard from a lot of you who really enjoyed that and appreciated hearing some real world examples of how merchants have either studied the impact of account takeover and other issues on their customer spend, both before and after an ATO happened, as well as a merchant who by default did an A-B test because they have two different geography or two offices in two different geographies where one of them had a lot more than educational approach to educating their customers on best practices for protecting their own accounts and that that was more successful and led to 10x more spend than the other group that instead did the traditional adding two-factor authentication or adding the need 
to upload a driver's license or things like that in the process. So on that one, I had someone ask if I had, can provide examples of the copy or verbiage from that merchant that used the educational approach. And I'm checking with them to see if that's something I can anonymize and share, or if the merchant's okay with me sending people to their website. That's TBD, but I will keep you guys posted. I do know there are some marketplaces that have some great verbiage on that. So sometimes you can take a look at that as well and look at policies and look at advice from merchants on how to protect your account to get some examples. So lastly, I saw a study today actually that talked about how sales volumes online we knew this part. Sales volumes online grew 30% almost overnight in Q2 of even end of Q1 and Q2, 3, and 4 of 2020. And that growth continued into 2021. But now this study is saying that it's normalizing to pre-pandemic sales levels. According to the eMarketer US survey, this is US specific. I know there are a lot of amazing international listeners, so I'm sorry for that. But I also know a lot of you have e-commerce sites in the U.S. I believe that these aren't going to be too far off for international. There's going to be some things to keep in mind geographically in some areas. But for the most part, I think these are fairly consistent with international in general. The projected year-over-year -year growth by category within e-commerce, apparel and sporting goods and groceries and food, etc., are expected to go down each year, probably because there's a larger market share that's already buying their products online. Uh, there's just so many people that will adopt online commerce. So at some point you're going to level out. So I believe just off the cuff, while there was 30% growth across all verticals in 2020, now for 2022, they're estimating, depending on the vertical, like 10 to 19% growth. And each year it goes out to 2026 in projections. Each year that growth percentage is a little bit lower. In 2022, the total annual e-commerce sales in the U.S. will surpass $1 trillion, which is 15.2% of retail. That surprises a lot of people that e-commerce isn't bigger and that it is only 15.2% of the total retail spend. But when you think about the big box stores you buy from, the home improvement stores you buy from, the gas stations you buy from, like all in person, that starts to make more sense. For instance, I used to buy my dog's food online and now I just prefer to buy it from a local pet store because the price isn't much different and I want to support the local merchant. So in that case, that's an example of me. Take, I went from buying in person and then buying online for about a year and a half and then now back to buying in person. So that's one very small example of how that's now cutting back a little bit. Let's see, by 2025, they're predicting more than half of all sales will come from online in three categories. So more than half of the online sales in 2025 will come from three categories. The categories are apparel and accessories, office equipment and supplies, and toys and hobbies. So if you work for a company in one of those three areas, you can expect that to continue to grow at a pretty high rate. But I wanted to talk about why this matters. So not just because a lot of you are in e-commerce and it's good to know the growth rate, but this does impact fraud and payments as well in a lot of ways. One way is that it's harder for the fraudsters to hide when there are less good transactions. But in addition to the transactional volume and changes there, 
because, you know, if sales are going down, fraud's not necessarily going to go down with the sales. So that's why I said it might be easier to spot. But in addition to that, I think we're already starting to see that many e-commerce companies and vendors that support those e-commerce companies have started to get used to the, this really steep growth and in increases from two years ago. But now that sales are stalling out, we may see decreased valuations, layoffs, and cost cutting. I know we're already, we've already seen that with some companies that hired a lot during the pandemic and are now cutting back. We've also seen it with some solution provider uh, valuations that may have done their last round or gone public or been acquired at a rate based on the growth rate of their clients or their customers during that time. And now that's stalling out as well. So that's something to consider. But please know that I'm not necessarily saying that means that there's going to be like massive layoffs and fraud. There is, I mean, for the most part, fraud prevention is fairly recession proof. Another thing that I thought was interesting, um, I was talking to a merchant that has an app based company that they saw significant growth in account numbers and dollars and all of that during the pandemic because they were one of those services or products that came in very handy during that time and that really created ease of getting items or doing things. I'm like trying to be very broad and sometimes that's makes me sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just trying to be very broad. So some of those companies would be like grocery and food delivery, private rentals of homes, cars, RVs, et cetera, pet food and supplies, all grocery, all of those things that we all got used to. In some cases, people are continuing to do that. I haven't gone into a grocery store in quite a while because it's just so much easier to have it delivered to my house. But in other cases, well, they're not using it as much. But this merchant mentioned that they've noticed that new customers during that time came onto their app and really expected seamless interactions, strong communication, and a safe buying experience. And if they didn't get that, they wouldn't use the product or service for longer than they needed to. And I think that can be reflected on reviews for some of those services, as well as just in general, if you work for those companies, I'm sure you're tracking your active users. You know how I feel about active users versus active verified users, but that's a whole other thing. But I just thought that, that was interesting. I've had a few conversations in the last two weeks with merchants and solution providers that have just talked about how we're seeing the behaviors that we saw in e-commerce and marketplaces and even in fintech start to be reduced and that how that's impacting company valuations, how that's impacting decisions being made for the company, how that's impacting different companies in different ways, depending on what they provide. So I just thought that that was fascinating to me. So I hope that was fascinating to you as well. With that, I am going to be in San Francisco next week for Marketplace Risk. I hope to see some of you there. I am looking forward to the ones I know for sure will be there, and I'm sure there will be a few others too. There will still be content next week, but I will be in the Bay Area my first time since January of 2020, which is so weird because I used to go there at least four or five times a year. Uh, so anyway, I will be doing that, but I hope all is going well for you, and I will talk to you next week.
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.